Uh, Father, um, oh Lord, my heart is, has been ministered to already this morning. Um, you're just so gracious in allowing us to uh, experience the joy of corporate worship, uh, where the saints gather in your name and lift up praises to you uh, together as a body here. Lord, we're so grateful for this local body called Hope Point. Uh, Lord, that we get to uh, fellowship with each other, cry with each other, hug each other, love each other, sing praises to our King together. Uh, God, God, what grace we've already experienced this morning uh, from looking to you and, to, and looking at each other. So, Father, would you continue that grace as we hear from you, from the words that you've laid on Richard's heart? Uh, God, would you um, speak through him to our hearts? Uh, Lord, there's just words on paper right now, but you've promised that your word does not return void. And uh, Lord, so we listen with expectant ears and hearts, trusting that your word will do its work this morning. Father, I lift up the uh, persecuted church right now. Uh, as we have missionaries, brothers and sisters all over the world right now who are locked up in prison, missing meals, away from families because they are unashamed of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, would you be their comfort right now? Would you comfort their families who are missing them um, as you uh, bring glory to your name through their situation? Father, I lift up those in Pittsburgh right now who are suffering great loss. Lord, would you um, be a strong fortress to those families this morning? Would you use this event, this tragedy, to draw people to you? That they would see the sovereign God of all the universe in this. And that people would be drawn to Jesus Christ uh, through even tragedy. Again, Father, we ask for your favor on this service this morning. May Christ be high and lifted up. And may we look to him. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you weren't here last week, we ended the service by looking at one of the uh, greatest motivators to prayer in all of the Bible, Ephesians 3.20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul to summarize that verse in three words, he would say, that's easy. God is limitless. And therefore, that might explain why all the banners around the church these three or four weeks at Hope Point. What an incentive to pray that you are connected to a limitless God because He says to you, no matter what you can think, I can outthink you. No matter what you can ask of me, you cannot ask of me that I cannot be there waiting to say, you could have asked me more that I wanted to do. You cannot out-imagine God what He wants to do in your life, in your family, in this church, and in this city. 
Now, we came to this verse last week because it was in the context of a prayer that Paul was praying for the Ephesian church. And if you are looking for one of the more interesting Bible studies that you might want to participate in personally or maybe your small group, why don't you do D.A. Carson's study of how Paul prayed for all of the churches of the New Testament. Because it is amazing how often the Apostle Paul stopped in his letters that he was writing to the church and ended up praying for the church and you, you want to say, why did Paul pray so much for the church? And the answer is, he got it. He understood that everything revolves around prayer. Five-sevenths of all the prayers in the Bible are for the Lord's people. We always think about we're praying for the lost, praying for the unbelieving world. Five-sevenths of all the prayers of the Bible are for the Lord's people to remain strong. The kingdom of God moves by the power of God, but the power of God is accessed by the prayers of the people of God. Everything is dependent on prayer. This is how we said it in one sentence last week. God is limitless. Therefore, anyone whose heart has been purified by faith in Jesus Christ and fervently prays to the Heavenly Father from an obedient and humble heart is connected to the limitless ability of the sovereign King of the universe. So we asked you last week, and I was encouraged that 50 of you, 50 new people signed up to please go to the App Store. You, you, you download all sorts of other things on your iPhone. Go to the App Store and download the Hope Point app. 50 of you did it after last week's service because at 3.20 every day, we send out, and we're basing that on Ephesians 3.20. At 3.20 every day, we send out a 140-character prayer to guide you, to remind you to pray for the church and how encouraging it was for us as a staff last week to know that so many in the church at one time were praying at 3.20 for this church. And I hope that this week you say, oh, my goodness, I forgot it would even double. I mean, how precious it would be if this entire church at 3.20 every day this week was praying for the power of God to fall on this church. And we're going to do it at least for 21 days, which is what I hear it takes to create a habit. Someone texted me last week and said, Richard, that thing about praying at 320 based on Ephesians 320, that was brilliant. And I said, that's the first time that the word Richard and brilliant have ever been used in the same sentence. 320, please pray for Hope point. But this reliance on prayer is so counterintuitive to how we function in Western culture because normally if you want something, if you want more of whatever you're after, you just do more. If you're a lawyer, you bill more. If you're a surgeon, you operate more. You wash more dishes. You if you want a cleaner house, you, if you want to make more, more money, you cut grass, you, you get more yards to cut. Everything is wired within us. If you want more of whatever you're after, you know, if you run a plant, you go to uh, uh, more shifts. Or you want to make more money, you work more overtime. Everything within us says you want more of something, you work more. So prayer is counterintuitive when you say you want to see God work more, you do less and pray more. It's 
It's counterintuitive to everything when God brings us into a relationship with Him and calls us to His glorious work that we begin to pray more. I don't know of a better way to illustrate our reluctance to grasp this concept that it all depends on praying more than to look at a very frustrating day in the life of the disciples. And we might as well just go there and start working our way through the story in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 14, the difficulty that we all struggle with prayer is found in this great, great epic story of the disciples' failure because of their failure to pray. Mark 9, verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. If you're a normal person who reads the Bible, you probably come to this and say, who is they? Well, when you, when you read Mark chapter 9, you, you really need to know this is how the, this part of the chapter is divided. Uh, the they are three disciples. The disciples at this time are divided up. Three of them, prior to the story that we're looking at today, three of them have been on a mountain with Jesus for a one-day retreat, the greatest retreat in all of the world, when the glory of God descended. You can just imagine, imagine this. God the Father takes this holy vessel of his hands and pours out his glory and just saturates the Son of God who was retreating with him on top of this mountain with three disciples. I can't, and the Bible says the glory of God so saturated the body and clothing of Christ, it was as white as lightning. And it was an encouragement to Jesus as he faced the crucifixion and all the emotional pain and the physical pain and the spiritual pain of the cross and dying for the sins of the world. And so the glory of God was there, and Jesus was with three of his disciples, so three of them. And then the other nine disciples are who we're looking at in this story today. So when you come to Mark chapter 9, verse 14, when they came, is talking about Jesus and the three, they had just come off this mountain retreat to find the other nine disciples being bullied, badgered by this argument that was going on on the plain below the mountain. And you probably want to know what was the argument about. Well, Jesus wants to know that too. Mark 9, 15, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. Here's the answer. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a, a spirit, a demon, that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the demon, but they could not. So the nine disciples who were not with the other three on the mountain failed to exercise spiritual power over a demonic spirit that had taken possession of a young boy. And the religious leaders 
loved it. They jumped all over it and crowded around these disciples because they said, Aha, now that we know your master has a power that he can't overcome, your master is limited. They were embarrassed. They were humiliated because they had suffered a great defeat, and they had never seen this occur before because Jesus had always been with them when they encountered demons. So it was a difficult day for the disciples because they were hearing this voice that we cannot do all things. There's a kind of devil that we don't have power over. And they were beginning to hear this voice of doubt. Well, there are two audiences in this story that Jesus is now going to teach. He's going to teach the disciples a lesson in this story in Mark chapter 9, and he's going to teach the father of the demon-possessed boy a lesson. Now, I want to take these in reverse order because I started talking about prayer. So we're going to reverse the order And we're going to talk about prayer first, which means we have to go to the end of the story because the disciples want to know why this didn't work. Mark 9, 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive the demon out? And he replied, this kind of demonic power, this kind of miracle, this kind of need... This kind of work in the church only happens by way of prayer. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to apostles. The church is built on these men. He selected them. He chose them. He appointed them. And whenever Jesus appoints you, you don't have to worry about it. Are you qualified? Yes, you're qualified. They're ready. They they had done this before. They had healed the sick. They had already cast out demons before. But today they failed. And they had failed because they had tried to do the work of God without prayer. They relied upon their calling. They relied upon previous experience. They didn't rely upon today's fresh anointing of prayer. Man. And so they felt. Ronnie and I were in Atlanta. Mentioned that last week. But we attended a conference that is um, hosted every couple years by the International Mission Board, which is affiliated with 4,000 missionaries that serve all around the globe, and they gave us a book entitled Core Missiological Convictions. I was reading through it during the conference and came to the one on, on, on prayer, and I love their core conviction on prayer. We are unashamedly supernaturalist in our worldview And we believe God works supernaturally through our praying. We are unashamedly supernaturalist 
in our worldview, and we believe God works supernaturally through our praying. So I want to tell you, this is, would be my worldview as well. I am unashamedly telling you everything this church is going to accomplish here, across the city, across the globe, is going to happen through supernatural power that occurs only when we get serious about praying. Not money, not preaching, not strategy, but desperate praying releases the power of a supernatural God. And so it begins, hopefully, 320 every day that we will at least be together. And I want to tell you that that 320 reminder has been so good for Lisa and me. We're not together every day at 320. She didn't always get home from school. I'm not obviously home from the office. But the fact that that prayer thing comes on both of our phones, it makes me not, it turns me from being a passive husband to know that by the, before we go to bed, including last night when I didn't feel like it, we'd been back and forth to North Augusta with mom all day, and we hadn't prayed specifically for the, our prayer time for the church, and it was late, we were tired, but I didn't want to be a passive husband and not lead, hold my, take the lead, and before midnight, we we're going to pray for this church because... I'm part of the 320 prayer group. I'm not going to be a passive husband. I'm going to lead my wife. Whether I feel, Prayer is not about do I feel like leading her in prayer. I reject passivity in my home. And I'm going to lead her in prayer. Because it is the will of God and it is the way the supernatural power of God is released through prayer. It is scriptural. Please pray with us. 320, 420, whatever time you can get together. Our prayers are very short, but we are trying to pray. Do you know why Jesus let these men pray, fail in Mark chapter 9? So they might hunger again to pray like this. Oh, Jesus, would you give us a second chance to have the power to cast demons out of people who are demonically oppressed? And when is the last time you prayed like that? Please let me have power to cast demons out of those who are demonically oppressed in this city. Please, God, let me share Christ in such a way that those who've been hardened all their life will respond to the gospel. I've tried over and over again to share Christ, but I've not prayed before I go. So he lets you fail over and over again so that you will then begin to pray before you go. Praise God he lets us fail so we'll turn to prayer. D. Carson says, what is both surprising and depressing is the sheer prayerlessness that characterizes so much of the Western church. 
It is surprising because it is out of, it is out of step with the Bible that portrays what Christian living should be. Prayer. It is depressing because it frequently coexists with abounding Christian activity. I mean, that we're very busy, but not very busy with prayer. Do you know why the disciples, do you know why the disciples did not pray that day? Because they did not sense their weakness. Listen. The nine disciples did not pray before they tried to exercise that demon. That Listen, there's a reason the Bible is written in the order in which it is written. Mount of Transfiguration followed by the failure to cast out the demon. There's a connection. What was going on on the Mount of Transfiguration? The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration were arguing about why does Jesus have to die? Read it. They were sitting there, what are you talking about rising from the dead? Uh, How can you rise from the dead? Because you don't need to die. The reason they they didn't get that he had to rise from the dead is they did not feel their weakness in sin that someone needed to die for them. And therefore, they didn't sense a weakness therefore a need for a savior so the three on the mountain didn't feel weakness and the nine on the plane didn't feel weakness and that's why people don't pray instead of feeling weak they feel strong and they feel self-reliant tim keller the disciples are trying to exercise a demon they're trying to cast out a demon but they have been trying to exercise it without praying how arrogant How clueless they are about their inadequacy to deal with the evil and suffering of the world. They didn't see how weak and proud they were. You want to go minister in Pittsburgh without prayer after that shooting? There is nothing to do for Pittsburgh right now but pray. And all the inner cities, especially Spartanburg, pray. You go after the service day and go, the best thing you can do for Sidewalk Hope when you go look at that truck after the service day, go touch it and pray. Go touch Chip and pray for her. Go touch her face. (laughs) Pray for her. Do you know why, do you, listen, if you didn't pray this week at 3.20, do you, if you didn't, do you know why you didn't pray this week? Because you felt too strong. Self-reliant. This is what happened. If you didn't, if you didn't pray this week, this is what you said. My time would be better spent answering emails, phone calls, seeing more clients, preparing more meals, cleaning more sinks, paying more bills, or worrying about bills, posting more Facebook posts, name it. That's more important than praying to a limitless God. Prayer is a declaration of war against self-reliance. 
Prayer is a declaration of war against self-sufficiency. Prayer is a declaration of war against self-trust. Prayer is a declaration of our limited abilities and therefore our desperate need for the limitless power of Jesus Christ. Before we leave this portion of Mark 9, let me just, just briefly point out one precious question. Mark 9, 28, why couldn't we drive it out? Do you know why I think it's such a great time that God is calling us to prayer at this point in, in, in Hope Point's history? Because I think everybody should ask this question of their life. Why am I not seeing more fruit in my ministry? Ask this of yourself. And I bet he, the finger of God might land on an area of your life. And it might not even be huge. But I had a friend some, right before church today. I couldn't believe. He said, a year ago, he said, I came to you and I spouted off just how much I hated Clemson University. And he said, I ask your forgiveness because I made a big deal about a stupid thing. I, I, I never thought about it, but it bothered him that he let something become big. And he said, I ask your forgiveness. Now listen, that was between him and God, God and him. But I thought how cool that is, that it was bothering him. He said, I'm getting that off. So this is what you do. Why can't? Why am I not seeing power? Ask God that. He will answer you. Charles Spurgeon says, man, this is back in 1854. Let the church of God get to the windows of her sanctuaries and look out and say, why are these thousands of people not coming inside this building to hear the gospel? Man, that, that last song y'all sang? Really? It should bother you. Why are thousands not hearing that song? So we ask why. Why are thousands not Wanting to hear that song. Because you know what it did for you. I mean, Dan got really close to getting excited. <laughs> now, in our remaining time, I want to look at the other audience that Jesus wanted to teach. This is my favorite audience in the story. Not the disciples, but the father of the demon-possessed Boy, let's get our momentum back. Mark 9, 19. Now, you unbelieving generation. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. <clears throat> I'm so glad we're doing the next lead like Jesus. because He's just so fun to watch, isn't he? He's just so fun to watch. You think he's mad here. He's not mad. You think he's like, you, you think this is a statement like he's like, he's like, he's not mad here. He's hurting for them. 
And he's telling them, when he says how long, what he's trying to tell them, I'm not going to be here with you much longer physically. You've got to learn to do this without my physical presence. That's what this verse is all about. How long is it going to take you to learn you can do this? So bring the boy to me and watch me again exercise divine authority because you've got to learn to do this. You can do this in my name. That's what all that's about. Verse 20. So they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? I don't know if there's a sweeter question in all of Scripture. Man, have you ever been to a doctor who talked like this? There are some doctors. There's, there's doctors in our church who talk like this. I mean, they care. They just want, you know, they're just not there just to, like, you, you got a 20-minute time slot and you're gone. They just want to know, tell me how long have you hurt It feels so good when somebody says to you, how long has your heart been breaking? How long has your heart been breaking in your marriage? How long has your heart been breaking for your child? How long has it been this way? This is as good as love gets. And look at the father's answer. Now, he was just ready. Man, have you ever asked somebody a question and man, they just begin to spew out because, like, their wound was so fresh that, like, there is no way they're hiding. Now, look at this answer. From childhood. I mean, this guy's ready. He's ready to talk. From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire. Can you believe a dad is having to say this? The demon has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. You can just see how deep these father's wounds are. I was at a Bible study this week, and um, it, it was it was we were asking this question of the students. You know, do do we believe today in Western culture, especially twenty first century America, do we believe in demonic possession? And we were all admitting that it's a little difficult because we don't see, you know, you don't, listen, Ronnie and I will be in India, you know, back in, in December, Lord willing. I mean, plans are there, hornbuckles will be there a little after us. And all of us who've traveled there and you've traveled third world countries and 
you, the more you get away from America, the more you travel into third world Asia, where you would, you know, Dan prayed for the persecuted church. The more where you just see the, the frontline army of God's kingdom people doing massive assault against the powers of darkness, the more you see demonic spirits in unusual ways. I mean, we've seen demonic possession at baptisms, where spirit, a demonic spirit will inhabit a body and turn it stiff as a board, stiffer than a board, shrieks. But so we were asking this in this Bible study this week. What is the evidence that demonic activity occurs in America? And, and, and the student, the med school student that we were with said, I, I thought this was a brilliant reply. I think the evidence of demonic, that demonic activity is just as real in Spartanburg as, as it is in <clears throat> rural India is, is how often... In our culture, demons lure, especially young people, into activities that end in death. See? Throw him into the fire. I think that is evidence of the power of demons, inner city or uh, opioid abuse. I think that is evidence of demonic powers in our culture that... Activities increasingly result in especially young people and this new terrorism that's occurring like Pittsburgh, death, a craving for death and a craving to induce death. It's to me evidence of a rise of demonic activity. But now to me, Everything in this service just gets rich with delight. Everything hinges on the end of verse 22. When the man says, but if you can do anything, would you help us? But if you can do anything. I never get tired of hearing Christ answer. If, (laughs) look at him, if you can, and right back in this, lovingly in this man's face, did you just say to me, if I can do anything? He, he, let me paraphrase that for you. If you really, if you deconstructed the Greek language here, let me tell you exactly what it looks like in New Testament Greek. It looks just like this. Jesus is saying the if is being implied or applied to the wrong person here. The if has nothing to do with me. It's not if I can do. The if is if you can believe. That's what it looks like. If you can believe. You have access to all the power of omnipotence. That's, and th- then the if gets huge. Because that's, that, that's big and that's not guaranteed. 
His power is guaranteed. Our faith is not. If you can believe, you will be connected to omnipotence. Everything is possible for one who believes. The size of our faith determines the amount of the power that flows through us. You attach a pipe to a water main, you know how much water is going to come through that pipe? It depends on the size of the pipe. Hear that again. You attach a pipe to a water main, how much water is coming through that pipe is dependent on the size of the pipe. I mean, the water, the, the water main's got all unlimited water. The only restriction is the size of the pipe you attach to it. The size of our faith determines the amount of his power that flows through us. So ask yourselves today, how much do I trust God? How much do I trust God? You know, and I want to confess to you today. You know, I love having to preach. Do you know, do you know why I love having to preach? Because every week, the text saves me. The text saves your pastor long before it saves you. So this week, the text just like, oh God, thank you that you have not thumped me into oblivion. That I have not totally killed this church yet. I have not totally crushed this staff yet with doubt. Because I, I think I've come close by attaching a very small pipe to the water main and sometimes a pipe of doubt. And talking a lot more about doubt than faith. But the only reason for defective spiritual progress in any activity is defective faith. Everything is possible for him who believes. Well, at this point, we all, I mean, we're all in the story at this point, right? I mean, you get, you're excited, but you also realize, oh, 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 man, if it's dependent on faith, then that's good news and bad news. Then the man speaks for all of us. Well, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. <laughs> okay, if it's about faith, I'm, I'm in. But help overcome my unbelief. So let me quickly say a few things about unbelief. The first step of faith, the first step of faith for all of us is to simply admit we lack faith. Oh, that's good news. The first step of faith is to simply say, I'm lacking faith. Oh, that just is a relief. The first step of faith is to say, God, help me overcome my lack of faith. The, the real reason that many people do not trust in Jesus Christ is they simply do not want any more of Jesus Christ. I want more. So that's, that's, that's what happened to me this week in the text. 
yep, I'm a doubter and a powder, but I know one thing, I want more. That's where it starts. I want more. So did this man. I'm like the father here. In the, I want more. Second thing that's beautiful about the text is helplessness. Helplessness. This father, how many times had he seen this demon pick his son up and throw him into the fire or throw him in the nearby lake, as he said, to try to drown him? And he was helpless to stop it. And I want to tell all of you in listener land today, your helplessness is the, most, is the, is the greatest asset you have. So stop hating it, Richard. Stop hating your helplessness. It is the greatest key to your prayer life. And so cherish your helplessness. Cherish it. Cherish your helplessness. You know what I love about this man's faith? He would have never known that he did not believe unless he tried to believe. It's like striking a match inside a dark canyon. You don't really know how dark the canyon is until you light the little match. So once your faith begins to start trying, then you see all sorts of darkness that's within you. And that's when you just fall on God and say, I have sorrow. I have sorrow, O Lord, for my great lack of faith. But that is proof. Your sorrow, your sorrow for your lack of faith is proof of your possession of faith. Is that not good news? The striking of the match that lets you see how much faith you don't have is proof. I have faith that I can see I don't have faith. So you see, in every heart, there's always going to be this coexistence of faith and doubt. And hopefully we grow, but do not beat yourself up. No man should ever say, I am a hypocrite, because that you find out that you're not a perfect believer, not a perfect person of faith. They're always going to coexist. So the main thing is not the perfection of our faith, but the progressive growth of our faith. I was reading a commentary this week, and I love this statement. The author said, Weak, the one thing we can say, at least weak faith is faith. At least weak faith is faith. Right before this story took place in Mark 9, I think it's maybe Mark 6, you remember the woman? I think Dan preached about her a year or so ago. Very sick woman. She reached out and, you know, she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. She was very sick. Do you know what she touched him with? Finger. Look at that. Trembling, 12 years of sickness, and one fingernail. 
touches the hem. You can't get much smaller than that. Fingernail touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and the miracle occurs. Weak faith is still faith. You're headed in the right direction. And the last thing I want to say is, how does Jesus respond to our imperfect faith? By a perfect work. Jesus responds to our imperfect faith with a perfect work. Mark 9, 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Jesus strengthens our imperfect confidence by responding to us in perfect mercy. Let's pray.